Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And we are listening to Senegalese American pop star Akon singing in Hindi. Yes, you heard right. Hindi. The song is Chalak Chalo, and it's the lead number from the 2011 sci-fi Bollywood hit Ra One. Ekon's Bollywood debut must have been especially exciting back home in Senegal, where Hindi film music is massively popular, I tell you, everywhere you find it. It's just one example of the many musical and cultural connections between Africa and India. Today's show is all about those connections. Although it's little talked about, Africa and India have had a very deep relationship over the centuries, starting as early as the 6th century until today. Ships and planes and radio waves have crossed the Indian Ocean, creating a constant exchange of ideas, people and, of course, music. Coming up, we explore links between the African continent and the Indian subcontinent through conversations with scholars, musicians, and journalists. Well, there's a lot of amazing stuff ahead. Africans in India, Indians in Africa, the swinging history of Bombay's jazz age, and the Afro-Portuguese roots of Sri Lankan pop music. All that ahead on a special Hip Deep edition African sounds of the Indian subcontinent. To get us into the Afro-Indian mood, here's a track from Red Barat, a group out of New York that mixes Indian wedding music with the New Orleans brass band sound. Here's Apna Punjab Hovi. Brass band Red Barat with Apna Punjab Hovi. I'm Georges Collinet with African sounds of the Indian subcontinent on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts.
It's not very well known, but people of African descent live all throughout the Indian Ocean world. And to this day, there are black communities in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. In Chapter 1 of today's program, we're going to explore the little-known history of the African diaspora in India. First stop, Harlem, New York City. We are visiting the Schomburg Center for research in the African diaspora at the New York Public Library. And uh, we're looking at the new exhibition, Africans in India, from slaves to generals and rulers. Our guide is Dr. Sylvian Diouf, a curator and historian who studies the African diaspora. As you can see here, we have Iklas Khan, who was the, the prime minister of... The walls are covered with reproductions of paintings from Indian manuscripts depicting African figures draped in colorful silks and jeweled turbans. Next to Iklas Khan, we also have architects, East Africans, where... Sylvian's work has mostly focused on the diaspora in the Atlantic world, and she became interested in the history of Africans in India because their story reveals a much different narrative. Well, it's different in the sense that it's really the only place where Africans were able to reach the highest echelon of powers. They were generals, they were admirals, city planners, architects, and rulers. And it's a story that is really unique to that country. Scholars say Africans likely worked on ships, trading in the Indian Ocean since the rise of Islam in the 7th century. They start to show up in India in large numbers starting in the 1300s. They came mostly from what was then Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. Most of them arrived in India as slaves of the Muslim armies. When the Muslims arrived in India, they needed soldiers and they also needed administrators to govern the areas they had conquered. Often, Africans were placed in positions of trust, such as royal bodyguards and military commanders. And the idea was that foreigners would be more loyal because, you know, they didn't have any family and clan relation. Mostly the theory worked, but on occasion, African soldiers used their military prowess to take power for themselves. In 1486, the king of Bengal's African soldiers seized the throne and ruled for seven years before being overthrown themselves. In other cases, Africans found influence by rising through the ranks. One of the most famous East Africans in India was Malikambar. He was born in Ethiopia. He arrived in India in the early 1570s as a slave. Malik had been trained in finances in Arabia. He impressed his owners with his sharp intellect and was eventually made head minister to the Sultan of Ahmadnagar, essentially put in charge of running a major Indian kingdom. There are many paintings of him at the Harlem exhibit, but one of them is really special. It was commissioned by the Mughal emperor Jahangir, one of the most powerful rulers in India's history. It's Jahangir who stands on top of a globe, and the globe is on a, on a cow, and the cow is on a fish, and Jahangir is shooting an arrow through the severed head of Malikambar. Well, don't worry, this never actually happened. 
Malik Anbar had fought back Jahangir's armies in several wars, so the emperor had the painting made out of frustration. It gives you a sense of just how important Malik Anbar was. Before he died, Malik appointed a fellow Ethiopian to rule the princely state of Janjira from a massive island fortress on India's west coast. Janjira continued to be ruled by a dynasty of African Indian princes until India's unification in 1946. Africans also arrived in India in other ways. Portuguese, British and French colonizers brought enslaved Africans to work in their homes and in their armies. Today, the descendants of all these different waves of Africans are known by a single name, the Sidi. There are about 50,000 cities living in different pockets around India. They are divided between Roman Catholics, Hindus, and predominantly Muslims, such as these city musicians in Gujarat. To them, their music and dance is sacred, and it's a sacred gift that was given to them by their saints from Africa. Amy Kathleen Jarasboy is an ethnomusicologist at UCLA who has worked extensively with the cities. She made this recording at the hilltop shrine of the black saint Babagor. The music used by the cities to venerate him has many African traits, such as call and response singing, the musical instruments are also distinctly African. All of their instruments are unique to their community. Nobody else in all of India plays footed drums. The cities also play coconut rattles and something called the malunga. The Sidi Malunga is a musical bow that is otherwise not found in India. The Malunga looks and sounds just like the Brazilian berimbau used for capoeira. Both of them probably came from Angola originally. Despite the history of African Indians in important positions, most cities today don't have it so easy. They're the least served by social services, education and so forth because people look down on them. In Indian society, the cities' dark skin and foreign looks put them in the Indian category of Dalits or untouchables, making economic advancement difficult for them. Recently, though, the cities have been using their culture to make their story known and improve their conditions. They've started music and dance troupes. Amy was involved in organizing the first city tour. We toured all over India through a Ford Foundation grant and discovered that nobody had any idea that there were Africans living in India. They were astonished, 
was a great experience for the Sidis to be able to present themselves with an account of where they came from, why their music is so unique and so important, because it represents the important phase of Indian Ocean trade that is one of the reasons that India became so great. The cities said that old invitations to perform at festivals around India and the world has helped them earn respect from neighboring communities who have long treated them badly. In general, they're being valorized now because they represent the diversity that India is basically very proud of within its own society. from the city musicians of Gujarat. If you want to see images of some of those paintings we mentioned, well, we have them up at afropop.org, so check it out. In chapter two of our program, we jump forward to the 20th century and look at a different kind of Afro-Indian musical connection. Indian classical music has long been a source of inspiration for jazz musicians, from the later works of John Coltrane to the Indo-jazz fusions of John McLaughlin. But as it turns out, Jazz has had an important impact in India as well. Marlon Bishop picks up the story. In the 1930s, just a few decades after jazz tumbled out of New Orleans, it washed up clear on the other side of the world in Bombay, India's great seaside metropolis. Approaching the city of Bombay, the gateway to India. Bombay is the second largest city of India and one of the chief seaports of the Orient. It has a mixed population of over one million people, representing practically every race and creed in the world. In the 1930s, Bombay was coming into now a sense of its own as a global port city, but as a global port city that was now confident. Setting the scene for us is Naresh Fernandez. He's the author of Taj Mahal Foxtrot, the definitive history of the Indian jazz age. So Bombay was booming economically. At the same time, India's struggle for independence against the British was underway. There was a sense that independence was not just some sort of extremist uh, view, that it was going to be a real possibility. And this is the backdrop against which jazz then became very popular. Uh, Indian musicians were listening to this music that was sweeping the world and trying to make something of their own. The story of Indian jazz unfolds in the Taj Mahal. Not, you know, the Taj Mahal, 
but a luxury hotel of the same name. At the time, it was the grandest and most ostentatious hotel in all of India. The Taj Mahal was that strange thing in that it was where Bombay's richest people gathered, and yet it became that node uh, of, of essential transmission of, of cultural messages between East and West. It was where Bombay's elites got their first taste of the latest fashions. So when jazz came to India, it came direct to the Taj. This is the Taj Mahal Foxtrot, a kind of theme song for the Taj Mahal Hotel Ballroom. It was recorded by Cricket Smith and his Symphonians, one of the many African-American bands working in Bombay around the 1930s. But let's take it from the top. Jazz first appeared in Bombay with the guy you're hearing right now, Leon Abbey, a black violinist from Minnesota, who showed up with an eight-piece band in 1935. Bombay society was all agog. This was finally the chance to foxtrot to this music that was capturing the imagination of their peers around the world. And yet when Leon Abbey came to Bombay for the first time, this upper-crust elite was sort of slightly thrown into disarray because Leon Abbey's uh, quick step was so quick for them, they could barely keep up with his rhythms. Eventually, audiences figured it out. Abby and his band cleared a path for the many African-American jazz musicians who would follow suit. They'd come for months, sometimes years at a time, to live and perform. The city had a number of selling points for musicians. The pay was good, and the competition wasn't as steep as it was in the U.S. But also, India was a place where black musicians could live free of the kind of discrimination they faced daily in the States. You know, in a strange way, yes, Indians are very racist, and the African-Americans seem to sort of transcend uh, that sort of discrimination, I think because they were American. They sort of cut a, a style, they had a, a glamour about them. Uh, and also because they were playing in uh, sort of elite spaces. To many of these African-American musicians, they were escaping racism at home. Um, and they were treated magnificently in Bombay. In fact, they were kind of celebrities. Dishes were named after them at the Taj Mahal. When Terry Weatherford, who was a, a stride pianist who spent many years in India, 
was asked why he chose to live in Bombay, he said, ah, that's because they treat us white folks fine here. As jazz swept through Bombay, it wasn't long before Indian musicians started their own swing bands. This trumpet, for example, belongs to Xavier Vass, alias Chick Chocolate. Chocolate was known as a great player and showman, the closest thing to an Indian Louis Armstrong. He led his own band at the Taj, called the Music Makers. Like most Indian jazz musicians, Chick Chocolate was from Goa, a Catholic Portuguese-ruled enclave about 400 miles south of Bombay. Every boy from Goa who came to Bombay wanting to be a musician dreamt of playing alongside these legends to learn to, in their words, to play like Negroes. To be African-American was the ultimate dream, to be able to play with fluency and to be able to improvise. Few people in India at the time knew how to play Western instruments, let alone hot jazz. As it happened, the only people who did know in India how to do that at that time were these Goan Roman Catholic musicians who'd learned how to play uh, harmonic instruments in parochial schools that had been set up by the Portuguese almost from the 16th century. It was actually a Goan musician named Frank Fernand that inspired Naresh to research jazz in India in the first place. Well, among the characters who completely fascinated me was the man who set me off on this quest, Frank Fernand. Fernand studied with Teddy Weatherford, a great black stride pianist who came to Bombay in the 30s and never left. Frank Fernand had a keen ear for the changes both in uh, the global music world, but also uh, was deeply interested in what was happening in India. In the 1940s, a chance encounter while playing at a hill resort in Missouri changed Fernand's perspective on jazz. Gandhi happened to be passing through and Gandhi gave discourses and lectures every day. Frank Fernand listened to one of them and that completely changed his life, he said. He went away trying to find a way to play jazz in an Indian way. Sadly, we don't have any recordings of Fernand, but we do know from concert notes that he composed jazz with Indian themes. And so long before people like John Coltrane were introducing Indian elements into jazz, Indian jazz musicians were trying to find a way to root jazz in their context, to say that jazz was a global language that could be spoken in many different ways. And while Frank Fernand was doing that on the concert stage, in a more popular way, he and his friends were already trying to find ways to play Hindi film music, the greatest pop music India had ever known, 
and to introduce jazz elements into that. You've probably heard of Bombay's Hindi film industry, a little thing called Bollywood that was just starting to boom during the Indian jazz age. Then, as now, the song and dance numbers were the main attraction. And Naresh says that the music of Bollywood, India's greatest cultural export, would never have been possible without jazz. This is why. Hindustani classical music is melodic. Everybody reiterates a single line. But in order for film music to be truly effective, it needs to be harmonic. And so the Hindustani musicians who composed these melodies didn't know how to do that. This was not part of their training. Goan jazz musicians, on the other hand, could read and write Western notation. They were sought after not only as musicians, but as arrangers as well. It would be the role of the arranger, the Goan arranger, to take down these little uh, fragments of melody and he would then go back to the studio and craft it. And as he scored it out, he would throw in Ellington uh, doodles that he'd picked up from his experience in the dance bands or other things he'd listened to. And this really sort of gave Hindi film music this great promiscuous charm that it had. Early Bollywood films featured the occasional Hindi jazz number as well. This, for example, is Ina Mina Dika from the 1957 film Asha. from the early Bollywood film Asha. Bollywood music was a quintessentially cosmopolitan creation. It was made by Portuguese-trained Goan musicians in Bombay, 
who ended up transmitting African-American jazz sounds into Hindi songs. And not only that. A lot of the tunes, uh, the melodies, were crafted by men who were Hindu with training in the Hindustani classical tradition. But the best lyrics were crafted by Urdu-speaking Muslims. And this multicultural arrangement, it actually made a lot of sense. We had a notion of unity and diversity, which was the phrase of the first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. And this was really sort of reflected in the way Hindi film uh, music got created in the studios every day. I think that jazz and Hindi film music really became the sound of this new India. That was Evening in Gay Maharashtra, a jazzy tune from 1969 about nightlife in Bombay by Mina Kava and the music makers. This is African Sounds of the Indian Subcontinent. To read our full interview with Naresh Fernandez and see images from the jazz scene in 1930s Bombay, visit afropop.org. Coming up, we dive into the Sri Lankan Afro-Portuguese pop music known as Baila and hear the story of an Indian musician growing up in apartheid South Africa. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Okay, we're back. Now for chapter three. We turn to the island nation of Sri Lanka, where it turns out Africans have played a major part in local pop music history. First, a little background. Here is Jim Sykes, an ethnomusicologist at King's College in London. He says people often underestimate Sri Lanka. The way Sri Lanka has traditionally been positioned is as a teardrop off the coast of India, 
And when you look at maps of South Asia, you'll see India as just this enormous subcontinent, and Sri Lanka uh, is just this tiny little dot off the southeastern coast. But, he says, if you change your focus and put the Indian Ocean in the center of your map, everything changes. All of a sudden, Sri Lanka emerges not as this tiny parochial little place, but as a hub of contact in the middle of this enormous ocean. And so once you start viewing Sri Lanka as a center rather than a periphery, a whole different view of the history of music opens up for you, one where Africa and Asia are not totally divorced from each other, and South Asia is seen as actually this type of crossroads between those places. The genre that epitomizes this idea of Sri Lanka as a crossroads between Africa and Asia is the national pop music style known as Baila. So I became aware of Baila one day when I was sitting in Staten Island in New York. That's Naresh Fernandez again. He was living in New York at the time and sitting in a Sri Lankan restaurant. And as I was jumping through this delicious lunch, I suddenly heard this song coming over the sound system that blew me away. Because this was a song that was, the lyrics were in Sinhalese, but I knew uh, a Bombay version of that called Bombay Mary Hair, which means Bombay is mine. It's a sort of party song that I'd grown up with. And so I immediately jumped up and went off to the counter and demanded to know what was happening. And they gave me a CD of a kind of music called Baila. Baila is, of course, the Portuguese and Spanish word for dance. Even the name of the genre intrigued Naresh. He was actually so intrigued that he decided to visit Sri Lanka to find out more. He found that Baila was everywhere. At every bar you go to, uh, after a certain point of the night when people have had a couple of drinks, some guy starts hammering at the table and this infectious rhythm goes across the room and then everybody is singing and dancing these really quite bawdy songs. But you could see from the glee on people's faces that clearly this was sort of hitting them in a place deep inside. Let's take a listen to the Baila sound. Here's a track from one of the greatest Baila stars of all time, MS Fernando. Mang, 
Baila star MS Fernando Besides the bars and taxi cabs, another place you'll hear baila in Sri Lanka is at cricket games. Fans show up to the games prepared with drums and trumpets and play classic baila melodies to help pump up the crowd. This style is known as papare. Papare cricket game music from Sri Lanka. Baila and papare music are the result of centuries of mixing of African, Portuguese and Sri Lankan cultures on the island. Our next guest scholar on today's program is Sheehan De Silva, a research fellow at the University of London who works on Afro-Sri Lankan history. So we have records from the 6th century where Ethiopian traders, free migrants, were trading in Sri Lanka. But what we don't know is whether they settled down. So really, the history of Afro-Sri Lankans begins from the colonial era. That's when the Portuguese came. Sri Lanka has something of a topsy-turvy colonial history. The Portuguese, then the Dutch, and finally the British ruled the island for about 150 years each. And all three employed or engaged Africans in their work. Africans were well-known to be sailors and soldiers, servants, musicians, fort builders, water carriers, nannies. Altogether, Africans have had a consistent presence on the island for almost 500 years. And they're still here. Hello. Hello, hello. A few small Afro-Sri Lankan communities exist in Sri Lanka today. So what are your names? Jim Sykes stopped by one of them for us. Last time he was in Sri Lanka. So how long do they trace their ancestry in this village? That's Jim speaking to a woman named Jacinta through a translator. Seventh generation. Jacinta told Jim that, as far as she knows, the community's ancestors were brought from Mozambique to Sri Lanka to fight a war in 1817. 1817. 1817. So you know the exact year. Yeah, that's right. The question that my wife posed to them was that now if you are given the opportunity to go back to Mozambique, would you like to go there or would you like to stay here? Everyone says no, they want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> but if they're given the opportunity to go there and just see and that visit. country, yes. yeah. visit the country, yeah. they'll be happy. Yeah. 
Well, actually, they will be going to South Africa later this year to perform. Jacinta is in a touring group that plays traditional Afro-Sri Lankan music, a style called Mania. The songs are sung in Sri Lanka's Portuguese Creole, still spoken by a small number of people. Here they are. Afro-Sri Lankan mania music. Well, you can really hear those African polyrhythms, can't you? Man, one of the hints of Baila's African origins is that it has the same three-against-two rhythm you just heard, which is almost universally present in African music and not commonly found in South Asian music. Another sign is Kafrina. Kafrina is the name of an older style of Afro-Portuguese dance music that preceded Baila, played on all sorts of string instruments. Shihan de Silva. Kafrina is Kaf plus Inya is the Portuguese diminutive. So Kaf is African, so it means a little bit of African. And the little bit of African in the music comes from the rhythms. And otherwise there's a lot of melody that's Portuguese. Most agree that Sri Lanka's baila music begins in the 1940s with a guy named Wally Bastian. Wally Bastian was a policeman, a traffic warden. His mother was Sinhalese and his father was Dutch Burger. Dutch Burger was the name of the elite class of Sri Lankans descended from Europeans. Wally was from a poorer Burger family. The poorer burghers go into the rich burghers' houses during festivals and they dress up as Africans and they used to dance the Kafrina. So he was very much influenced by Kafrina. Wally began to write songs, putting lyrics to the 6-8 Kafrina rhythm, and they became massively popular. Shihan de Silva doesn't think it's a coincidence that Wally invented this new style right after Sri Lanka won independence from Great Britain. So that's the time when people want to throw away everything that's Western, but they realize that they can't do that, it's too far gone. So, you know, Wally Bastian comes up with mixing three elements, you know, African, European and Sri Lankan, something that's palatable to the changed people, because they can't go back to what they were in the 15th century. (laughs) 
One of the secrets behind Wally Bastian's success was his lyrics. He used baila to tell stories about Sri Lankan life. Often they were comical or a little risque. In one of his last bailas, he talks about his four wives. The song is called Irene, Josephine, Catherine, Angeline. So he talks about his four wives and above all, he liked his guitar. And when he dies, he hopes that he meets his guitar in heaven. Josephine by Wally Bastian, a baila classic. Bastian laid the foundations for the hybrid sound that would dominate Sri Lankan pop for decades. Today's baila is full of digital synths and drum machines. It sounds something like this. The modern sound of Baila. In recent years, Baila has lost popularity to international sounds like hip-hop. At least one rapper is making reference to Baila, however. On this song by Ashanti, she rhymes over Papare, the cricket game version of Baila we heard earlier. That was Ashanti with Papare. Oh. 
For chapter 4 of our program, we'll turn around 180 degrees and take a look at India in Africa. Here's our producer, Marlon Bishop. There are roughly 2 million people of Indian descent living in Africa today. Many of them trace their roots in Africa to the 19th century, when the British brought them to work as indentured servants. Others, so-called passenger Indians, came to work as merchants and traders. Many in Africa's Indian communities have since thrived economically as the owners of shops, factories, and hotels. Over half a million people of Indian heritage live in the South African city of Durban alone, earning it the nickname the world's largest Indian city outside of India. One of the most notable musicians from South Africa's Indian community is Deepak Ram. Deepak's great-grandfather was brought to South Africa in 1860 to work on railroads and sugar plantations, and his family settled in the Transvaal, near Johannesburg. He's a master of the Indian Bansuri flute, and has worked for decades developing a language that mixes Indian classical music and jazz. We're actually hearing a track of his right now, called Tandev. Today, he lives in Maryland, but Deepak's experiences growing up as an Indian in apartheid South Africa have helped shape him as a musician. He joins us today to tell us a little about that. Welcome to Afropop Worldwide, Deepak. Thank you so much for having me. So, I understand that your family was affected by the apartheid policies in South Africa. Can you explain what happened and what it was like to be an Indian living in South Africa during that time? To put it in a nutshell, apartheid basically was a hierarchical system. So Indians uh, was the third in the hierarchy. My family lived in an area called Sofaitan. Sofaitan gave birth to some of the greatest musicians like Maria Makeba. It was a mixed race community. And when the National Party came, they introduced the thing called Group Areas Act, which forced Indians, uh, people of mixed race and African people to live separately. And so this happened overnight, you know, they just came in and, you know, started uh, telling people to leave their houses, the houses were going to be bulldozed, and then they forced us to go to a place called Lanasia. So basically, you know, as I look back, it was kind of a bizarre way of living because I lived in an area which was exclusively meant for Indians. So as you can imagine, that impacted me quite a bit culturally. So... Musically and otherwise, what were your influences as a young person? What was cultural life like in Lanasia? Because we were confined to uh, Indian uh, suburbs, I was exposed to a lot of Indian music from very, very beginning. Uh, we had interactions with African people, but not on a social level. And I remember there a lot of African kids used to make guitars from oil cans. And, um, and, and as a kid, that excited me a lot. So there was a lot of music all over, you know. Uh, live in the street, but I was also exposed to a lot of jazz. The American influence of movies and jazz at that time was really huge amongst African people. So you learned the Bansuri, the Indian classical flute, with a teacher in South Africa, and then you traveled to India as a teenager to further your studies. What was that experience like? I went from apartheid South Africa to a country called India, and it was the first time I found myself in a country where there was no restriction. I could sit on any bench, I could eat in any restaurant, I could stand in any line. And for a 16-year-old boy, that was very, very strange. 
because in South Africa, we almost thought that this is how life is. And then you go to India and it's all free. Wow. So I was wondering, in that situation, you know, you spent most of your young life apart from other kinds of South Africans. When apartheid ended, did you suddenly come into contact with all these other musicians? Yeah, you know, 1990, when President Mandela was released from prison, that very same year I started teaching at the university. So as you can imagine, it was a renaissance in the country. And now I was teaching at a university where students of all population groups were attending. There I got exposed to a lot of amazing African musicians. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Nelson Mandela, I noticed you have a song on your album called Madiba's Dance. Tell me a little about that song. That song is, you know, if you've seen, you know, Nelson Mandela, or Madiba is his affectionately known. He's one of the first few world leaders that dances in public appearances, you know, like he, and he has this kind of movement which, which I try to capture in that piece. When you started playing jazz on the Indian flute, was this a way of kind of mixing your Indianness and your Africanness together? Musically speaking, improvisation is the is the quintessence of both Indian classical music and jazz. But the, the improvisation methodology or the dialect of improvisation, if you like, in both these systems of music is very, very different. So I spent past 10 years studying the dialect of jazz. Now I'm realizing the way I use rhythm in my compositions subconsciously has been influenced a lot with the stuff that I grew up listening to in South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us, Deepak, today. It was great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, one of India's biggest influences in Africa comes through Bollywood. Hindi films have an intense following throughout the continent. But in the Hausa lands of northern Nigeria, Bollywood fever is taken a step further. Indian movies are the main inspiration for the local film industry in Kano, Nigeria, known as Kaniwood. Local directors recreate the plot lines, costumes, and dances of Bollywood in the Hausa language. If you want to learn more, we have a whole program about the film industry in Nigeria called Nollywood Nigeria's Mirror, which you can find on afropop.org. The soundtracks from these Kaniwood films provide some of the most unexpected examples of Indian-African musical fusion anywhere. They draw on Indian melodies and vocal styles and beef them up with electronic beats and just the right amount of auto-tune. Here's a track from Fatih Niger off a brand new compilation of House of Film Music. This is Girma Girma. So 
Girma Girma, Indian-inspired house of film music from Fati Niger. Well, that's all we have time for today. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? But remember to learn more about any of the stories you heard today on the radio. Visit afropop.org. We have all sorts of stuff up there for you to check out. Extended interviews, blog posts, photos, music videos. Don't miss out on it. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Nonsuch Records, presenting the self-titled album by French Electronica innovator Saint-Germain, featuring new music inspired by jazz, blues, and Malian traditions. Saint-Germain is available now on iTunes. Thanks to Sheehan De Silva, Jim Sykes, Amy Kathleen Jairas Boy, Sylvian Duf, Naresh Fernandez, Deepak Ram, Rajinder Dudra and the New York Public Library for their help with this program. Additional thanks to Kirsty McGuire, Asia Bundawi, Hans Anderson and Purple Haze Studio in Bombay. My Afropa partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Marlon Bishop. Production assistance by Jocelyn Bonadio. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Michael Johnson. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Ataneo Fiaggia. And I'm Georges Collinet.